Welcome to the last episode ever of the Cold Popcast. We're no longer going to exist after this. I'm actually pretty excited to do this one. I hope uh, I'm able to convince you that there's more to this movie than meets the eye. Like Transformers. Yeah, exactly. In fact, can you imagine if Michael Bay directed this movie? Would you? (laughs) It would have been less accurate historically, but more interesting. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> be completely different than what actually happened. Not, so, not that Transformers isn't historically accurate. So in light of Irishman, last night I watched another Netflix production, the Taylor Swift documentary. They have one of those on there? Oh yeah. Just came out and I thought, you know. Imagine how uninterested you are in the Irishman. <laughs> Multiply that by a hundred and that's how I feel about a Taylor Swift documentary. So I thought, you know, to keep things lively and also uh, in lieu of Netflix, yeah. I'm going to strictly keep my thoughts about Irishman tonight in comparison to the Taylor Swift documentary. Oh my god. Wait, did briefly tell me what it's that's... It's called Miss Americana. I've already heard too much. <laughs> I Not only do I not care, I actively want to avoid Have you ever listened to any of Taylor Swift's music? Uh, when she was initially getting big, yeah, just because of the ubiquity, you know, she's on every platform, the radio, the right. TV, and my sister was a fan as well. Mm. But I couldn't, at this point in my life, quote any lyrics... <laughs> I could probably, I mean, her 1989 album was probably one of the best pop albums to come out of the last decade. 1989? Yeah, it's the year she was born. Oh. Why do I know that? (laughs) (laughs) Wait, so was the album called 1989? Yes. Okay. You're not saying the album she made in the year 1989, because I was about to- Her album, entitled 1989. (laughs) Got it, right, right, right. In fact, it was covered by one of the best musicians around, Ryan Adams, who- Recently was outed in the Me Too movement, so I'm not, we shouldn't talk about him anymore, but he literally, song for song, covered the whole album and released it in his own kind of style. Wow. Because he he was like, yeah, this this album is killer pop. So this documentary was good? Anyway, this documentary, Taylor Swift, she kind of says it's in the documentary, but often female pop stars have to reinvent themselves over and over and over again to stay relevant. Interesting. And I think that this documentary was, it was kind of like an expose on her own life. Obviously, I think she's producing it and everything that... And and this documentary in of itself is also sort of a reinvention of Taylor Swift in that she's trying to clear her name, I think, and also to... Clear her name from uh, what? All the negative stuff that's been said about her over the years. And she's either 30 or she's approaching 30 now. And it's basically her just saying, this is how I want society to view me for the rest of my life, in a way. So she's matured. At the same time, the whole documentary takes a turn for the latter half and is basically her advocating for her position in politics really it became i'm a democrat and oh that's how she feels pushing political agenda yeah interesting because democrat has become pro-life pro-choice pro whatever pro etc neoliberalism very cool it's deconstructed her as a person and then turned into this (laughs) political completely yeah netflix has a lot of interesting docs like that they have one called you don't mess with cats or something have you heard about that one yeah a lot of interesting stuff on netflix that i don't think a lot of people watch that but speaking of watching netflix or not watching it this is not a Taylor Swift podcast, <laughs> despite what you may think. But everything I say about Irishman, I'm going to outlandishly compare to Miss America. That'll maybe give you an interesting lens that could propel this cast forward. And I, I apologize ahead of time. 
I can't wait to hear the comparisons between Robert De Niro and Taylor Swift. There are many. They both have blue eyes, at least on Netflix. Those are probably contacts. I don't know. They are. Should we just jump into it? Let's jump into it. Do you think Taylor Swift has any Irish heritage? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. Because I didn't buy it from Robert De Niro in this movie. I never thought of him as an Irishman. By the way, I finished the film for listeners who were awaiting the anticipation of me getting past that first five seconds. I don't know if we told this anecdote before, but Steven texted me three hours into the movie. (laughs) I texted Gabe when I started it, and then I texted him two hours and 15 minutes later, and I said, still waiting for this movie to start. (laughs) I think that's unfair. I don't know. Is it is it not just the same thing over and over again? That is another topic I'd love to talk about. Maybe not tonight, but some other time. Is what makes something good? Or, not good, but <laughs> worth um, watching. Okay. Yeah. Well, kind of. What makes something boring, or what the perception of something that is boring? Yeah, we could talk about that. We should talk about that tonight. Pop culture and meme culture and all that stuff. Everything online. I love meme culture. I know they've all been attacking this film. Have they really? Yeah, as saying that this is extremely boring. There's a bunch of memes about how long this movie was and how people haven't even finished it. I think meme culture as a subsidiary of pop culture and the basic demographic. Meme culture is pop culture now. Yeah, it is. There's a lot of overlap. I don't think it's completely that way. The whole meme culture thing comes from the tail end of millennials into Generation Z, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And we've created a society. We, we've caused those younger people to have very short attention spans with technology and the, the way human minds work now. And this is the farthest thing. The Matrix. So this is the farthest thing from something that those types of people would enjoy. So it makes sense that there's a lot of backlash. If you look at the older demographics, I think that's where this movie is getting a lot of its good reception. I mean, clearly, it's nominated for 10 Academy Awards. What I'm trying to say is this movie isn't for everyone. You know what else isn't for everyone? Taylor Swift. 100%. <laughs> I agree with you. I think a lot of people would say, you know, Taylor Swift isn't for me. I can tell this is going to become annoying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, come on. No, it's it's Society's reaction Society. to Scorsese's Irishman is super similar to society's reaction to Taylor Swift. That was Swift. a bomb alliteration. You just hit like five S's in that sentence. Cycles silently. Speaking of silently, Silence was another movie by Martin Scorsese. I have yet to see that one. That was boring as heck. Oh, you thought it was boring. The weird thing about Scorsese for me is he's coming off of films like The Departed and Wolf of Wall Street, and then he does two back-to-back boring as films it doesn't make any sense they're introspective I'm, I'm but at the same time i love it because it's better than what wes anderson does where he never changes anything we're up get on wes again today <laughs> wesley wales well i mean if we're if we're comparing scorsese and wes anderson at least scorsese's trying new things no here's your comparison for the day scorsese to tarantino because once upon and a time tarantino in hollywood to taylor swift <laughs> imagine you had all three in a room <laughs> wes anderson scorsese and tarantino or tarantino scorsese any, any, and taylor any two swift. of those men and then taylor swift <laughs> and imagine the conversation or the lack of it it could be politically charged at least it probably would be i want to come back to that real quick though which one tarantino hollywood once upon a time in hollywood was okay. his most reserved film and brilliant and a lot of people felt the way about that that you feel about this movie they, they thought it was boring they, they, they thought felt- it was not interesting coming off of a catalog and a pedigree very exciting and dynamic movies i think you have these guys obviously tarantino isn't as old as scorsese is scorsese scorsese i mean here's the thing tarantino said the irishman is his favorite film of last year so there you go these guys are on the same page now yeah but again they're i think they're you know touching each other in in, in, in inappropriate ways (laughs) 
It's <laughs> touching each other's brains. <laughs> it's like when Scorsese, he, wasn't he the one who was kind of dumping on Marvel movies for a bit? Scorsese. And he, yeah, he, he said they weren't cinema. And he clarified his comments later on and what he, he meant. And, and what he meant was, they're not cinema. <laughs> <laughs> But he didn't mean. Well, it. let me clarify. Yeah, I don't. I don't mean that they're <laughs> films. They're not movies. <laughs> I meant what I said, but let me say it again. No, honestly, when he when he clarified, he essentially said the same thing. Yes, but I don't think he has the hostility that people implied. You know, well, what I really, mean? I mean, you have Departed, Wolf of Wall Street, and then you make two extremely long. No, no, he did Departed, Shutter Island, Wall Street, Silence into this one. Scorsese. Can you say? You know, he. Can you strictly talk in an Irish accent for the rest of the night? I really liked your Sersheronin. Sersheronin. Question. Wait, it's got to end on an up. It'd be, Yeah, see, that's how Robert De Niro should have been talking. His parents are both from Sicily. Wait, Irish is different from... Italian, it is. Italian. Some people think it's all the same, but it's not. Italians gave us pizza. The Irish gave us potatoes. Very different foods. And Irish whiskey. Jameson, right? Is that right? <laughs> Good, Gabe. <laughs> Can you name any other Irish whiskeys? <laughs> no. <laughs> I can't. Gabe. Yeah. Uh, can we talk about what's this film about? Let's read this. All right. The Irishman was based on the book called I Heard You Paint Houses by Charles Brandt. And that story, which is this story, is about Frank Sheeran. It's his life story, specifically in the second half of his life, starting in his 30s. He, in the 50s, became entangled with the Buffalino crime family based in Pennsylvania. Started out as a few things, but it ended up ended up really just being a hitman. And then it also goes into his relationship with labor leader Jimmy Hoffa. Can you please read word for word the last sentence of that paragraph? It's a gangsta flick. I wrote that one. Wait, really? <laughs> That's that, my contribution. That wasn't the official synopsis. Actually, no, I wrote that whole thing. Except for no, I, I wrote the whole oh, thing. Oh, finally. I've done that before. Oh, okay. I just didn't. <laughs> the know voice you. crack. I'm an Irish. I'm an Irish. Oh, it's a Mia. It's a Mia Robert De Niro. Robert De Niro. This is this is my favorite podcast so far. But yeah, it's a gangster movie for old men he's scorsese is sort of the quintessential gangster movie director from casino and goodfellas he started with mean streets which i think was a, another gangster pick it's a mia de niro it's a me <laughs> i don't think i'm gonna get over that the rest of the night this is actually fun fact again oh, the first time that scorsese has worked with al pacino it seems because this whole movie's like we're getting the old guys back together but it's the first time he's worked with pacino because scorsese had nothing to do with contrary to popular belief godfather yeah. Pacino. He's probably close with Coppola. Uh, 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 Pacino. Oh, yeah. Well, I thought Casino. Or no, sorry. No, Pacino no. Pacino was wasn't thinking, in Casino. I know, I know, Casino I know. Casino Pacino. <laughs> <laughs> Casino Pacino. I was going to say Arrivederci. <laughs> Golami. Ice my bread and butter. <laughs> that was really interesting for me to see. Pizza. Probably the most difficult. The pasta. The most difficult scene in this movie, they're at the restaurant. Yeah. I think it was De Niro, but Pesci's doing it too. They're appetizing on some bread. Instead of cutting it, they're clawing into this loaf of bread like savages. I guess that's just a cultural that's thing. Yeah, but to works. my delicate Western sensibilities. sensibilities, it's very disconcerting. They're tearing into this bread, dipping it in, in the wine, and just nomming on it like it's communion. <laughs> it's communion. I think that was allegorical of communion. Yeah. You know? I just, it was it was interesting to see. Like that was that was basically the scene where like I'm committing my life to you in a way, almost like a wow religious baptism scene. I didn't consider that angle. That's interesting. Well, because they do it several times. It takes higher thinking powers, Gabe. Yeah, it's an intellectuals movie. Yeah, which is why you didn't enjoy it. <laughs> you. <laughs> I'm sorry. All of a sudden, Gabe disappeared, and there was a dick in front of me. <laughs>
Okay, that's so the synopsis. What was the budget? Holy crap! The budget was that much. Yeah. So so this movie cost a hundred and sixty million dollars. Quick history lesson: I said he couldn't get the movie made for ten years. This book came out in around two thousand four. De Niro and Scorsese read the book after it came out, and they had been wanting to make another gangster picture for a while, and they wanted to get this movie made then, but they couldn't find the funding. Apparently, no one wanted to take the big gamble on Scorsese and De Niro anymore. So they sit on it for ten years. Netflix comes in. They're like, "We've g- g- apparently got a blank." check yeah that's what it is based around people giving us twelve dollars a month it seems to be the netflix business model it's called debt (laughs) (laughs) well yeah but think about what they're doing now they have people like fincher and all these big directors flocking to them because they have the blank check netflix is controlling our brains and our minds (laughs) and our lives and 160 million dollars of scorsese's budget yeah, so they gave him the money to make it, and there's some interesting Jeez, logistics that came so out of crazy. that. Coming off of our last episode, Jojo Rabbit had a budget of $14 million, and Irishman had a budget of $160 million. What was Avengers? Like t- over 200 right? Yeah, I mean, but obviously that's going to gross multi-bills. It had hardly any it didn't make theatrical release, <laughs> yeah. and it had barely any chance to make its money back. Was this the only movie out of the top nine there was, uh, that you did not see in the theater? No. Yes, actually. But it was playing, and I was going to see it with Marriage Story, but I, then I found out it was four hours long, and I didn't see it. Oh. Uh, I don't want to sit in the I do. I do wonder if it would have been more engaging to see in a theater setting. Uh, you go to a theater, you watch a gangster film, a gangster flick, and- Yeah, but this one was- It's kind of more engaging, and you're kind of more enraptured, because you have nowhere to go in a theater. You're kind of trapped. You can't escape. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I want out. Let me out. <laughs> Is three and a half, Is there an intermission? I'm a tired of the gangsters. I can't press buzz. I, did, I don't think so. And I'm not sure if it was meant to be a series initially, but I think it was. Yeah, I think it was. And Scorsese said, no, I want to make a movie. And he got a tiny theatrical release, but then it went straight to streaming. So we don't really know how much it made back. Let's talk about the 10 Academy Award nominations. I'm going to list them quickly. That's a lot. The Irishman was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Cinematography, Best Film Editing, Best Visual Effects, Best Costume Design, Best Production Design, and two supporting actor nominations in Al Pacino and Joe Pesci. Yeah, two supporting actors. Let's talk about a little bit of Scorsese's history. He was born again in New York in Queens in 1942. He's got a lot of standout films. It's funny that Todd Phillips's Joker, which is based off a of Taxi Driver, yeah, is going up against the Scorsese film because Scorsese also directed Taxi Driver. But let's I'm going to mention them really quickly. <clears throat> you could jump in if you want. Uh, Woodstock, was that his first film? Sure, it was like a three-hour documentary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, mean Streets, mm-hmm. Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, Goodfellas, Casino, Gangs of New York, The Departed, Shutter Island, Wolf of Wall Street, Silence, and now yeah. Irishman. I left a few out because he has more. He had he did like Hugo. I never saw Hugo. Oh, Hugo is great. That movie was not just a children's film. It was also a love letter to a classic film. It was. It, I think it was Scorsese's way of trying to capture his inner childlikeness. Child. The child inside him. <laughs> Screenplay written by Stephen Zalian. <laughs> Rhymes with alien. <laughs> I don't know. Wow, yeah. Schindler's List, Hannibal, Gangs of New York, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, the American one. Uh, the director of photography was Rodrigo Prieto, and he's known for Silence, Wolf of Wall Street, Argo, and Brokeback Mountain. And then his lifelong editor, Thelma Schoonmaker. She makes shoons. She's been working with Scorsese since Raging Bull. Robbie Robertson, that's a comic book character. He's the composer. Is the com- and also the composer. He's been working with TV series soundtracks since the 60s. Yeah, he didn't have a lot of composition credits for film, but he's very prolific in other ways. And let's talk about the actors really quick. There's a lot. 
but the the principal cast is Robert De Niro's as the Irishman himself. His name is Frank Sheeran in the flesh or in the digital flesh. <laughs> <laughs> Al Pacino is Jimmy Hoffa. Joe Pesci is Russell Buffalino. Also starring in this film is Harvey Keitel, Ray Romano, and Bobby Cannavale. I think honestly, I think it's Cannavale. <laughs> A lot, a lot of great cast. Talk to me about the techs. The technical specs. We talked about how this movie's budget was $160 million, yeah. and Scorsese really got his money worth out of it. It honestly might have been some of the best de-aging I've ever seen. That That's a huge part of it. Is I mean, we could talk about that for a minute. There were times that I couldn't tell that it was CG. The faces were really well done. This movie's played over the course of 50 years, so these guys at their youngest, are de-aged to be in their 30s and early 40s, which is crazy because they're all in their 70s, I think. And then it plays all the way through to even older than they are now. So not only were they de-aged, but they were overaged. A fun game, if you watch this movie, is to find the sweet spot and think about which timeline is the least effect on their that face. That was a fun game. It was something... I think it was... Allie and I were forced to play because... Like, which is the real Daenerys? It was like watching the same thing over and over again with different uh, CG. They did a really interesting thing with the way they shot it because to get the de-aging right. And they didn't want to do the typical performance capture, you know, where you stick little balls to your face and you have to act through that. Um, but they used three cameras on the entirety of the shoot. The primary was a 35 millimeter for most of it, and they used a red for some digital stuff. But they also had two Alexas on either side to capture these actors and provide that, they call it witness cameras, to get the angles so that they can have that to work with when they de-age them in post. And like you said, for the most part, the CGI was pretty good on the face. It's probably the best that de-aging has ever looked yep. on the screen. But I will say... I couldn't, I couldn't, I never could tell the difference. Yeah, I will say they're not able to do that to the whole body. So there are shots from wide angles where you see, you know, for instance, Robert De Niro walking down the street and he's clearly a man, you know, he's geriatric, he's in his 70s, 80s. He's not able to throw a punch like he did 40 years ago. So there's it's a, there's a strangeness when you see the supposedly 40-year-old guy punching and kicking another guy and he's clearly not supposed to be doing that because he's clearly very frail. Yeah. Uh, specifically De Niro because he's the one who really gets physical. Despite how this movie it was not my favorite and I keep saying how boring it is. There were a couple themes that I pulled out of it. The conversation when they're breaking bread, kind of communion, and he's talking about his experience during the war and he had those two soldiers keep digging their grave. Yeah, I was going to bring that up too. And he says the line, it's funny how people just keep digging their own graves. Yeah, they think they could still manage to get out of their situation. Yeah, and then he shoots them both and they fall into the grave. Yeah. Essentially what Frank Sheeran is doing, again, played by Robert De Niro, is digging his grave for the course of the whole film. And that's one thing that I had heard that Scorsese made it as long as he did was because he wanted the audience to feel the weight of the decisions of the character by the end of the film. Mm-hmm. So, so that when you get to the end and you see a really worn down old man who has made all of these terrible life decisions and his family is now estranged from him and he can't reconnect with, with his daughter who is played by Anna Paquin, by the way, and she's she's good in it. Just kind of a weird casting choice, but cool. Um, and in the end, he's alone and left with the weight of all of his life decisions and essentially has dug his own grave up to the point of the end of the film when he asks the priest to leave the door open on his way out. And he's alone. He's estranged. He has no one. The the young nurse that was helping him earlier didn't even know who Jimmy Hoffa was. She didn't recognize him, and he was his surprised. Whole, yeah, his whole life has passed him by. Yeah, his whole life has passed him by, and up to this point, he's left essentially in his grave 
with no one and no thing to really show for it. And he's still continuing to leave that door open. In the end, I think it's it's Scorsese's way of saying that Frank Sheeran has accepted the fact that he's dug his own grave. Mm, I disagree. And that's where my point comes in. I There were two big takeaways for me from this movie. And one of them is exactly what you hit on, which is mortality. And the other side of that coin, which we talked about last time with Jojo, is morality. And I think those things are interconnected in such a way that you really can't consider one without the other. I mean, if you're really digging deep and being introspective, which this movie is just three and a half hours of introspection because it's told from the framework of Robert De Niro's character narrating his own life. Like he's reflecting on it. You open up in the hospital and then you end in the hospital and he's recounting his story to the viewer. Talking about morality and Jojo and how essentially it's like the ethics of a soldier, right? This is a loyal company man who will do anything for what he considers to be, you know, in his life, the greater good or his employer. You know, for Jojo, they had the, the Reich, the Nazis. Right. For Frank Sheeran, it's the Buffalino crime family. And what they ask him to do, he does it without question. It starts in Frank Sheeran's 30s and 40s. And for the next 50 years, he's developed this incredibly close relationship with Al Pacino's character, Jimmy Hoffa, who was an incredibly influential figure of the day. You said he was even second to the president. Yeah, in his time in the 50s and 60s, this guy was just as well known and often just as well liked as the president. Often he was at odds with like JFK or whoever was in power because he led the unions, you know, the Teamsters. He was fighting for the common man, or that was his his angle. Mm -hmm. But he was incredibly well-known and important. And he also became incredibly close to Frank Sheeran. They were like brothers. Brotherly, I don't. Yeah. They were very close, and they were very comfortable with each other, so much that Jimmy Hoffa even fulfills the role of a godfather for Frank Sheeran's daughter. Anna Paquin. And that's one of the driving forces for their estrangement as the movie goes on. It's because his daughter sees Jimmy Hoffa as more of a father than Frank Sheeran. But even when Robert De Niro's character, Frank Sheeran, is asked to do the unspeakable, something that he absolutely cannot fathom doing, and he wrestles with this over the course of an hour, essentially, in the film, which for him is... It felt like an hour. Yeah, for, for him it's many years because the viewer and even the people in the movie see where this story is headed with these characters. And eventually, Joe Pesci, who is Frank Sheeran's employer, Joe Pesci being the Buffalino crime family patriarch, essentially. He asks Frank to kill his friend, who is Jimmy Hoffa, Al Pacino. And that's like your father telling you to kill your brother, because Pesci is the one that De Niro owes his entire allegiance to. He brought him up. He was basically no one, and he gave him a life, and he gave him success, and he essentially bought or earned his loyalty over the course of many years to the point where now he's asking him to do something that is the most difficult decision that De Niro's character has ever had to, you know, come across in his life, which is to kill his best friend or a brother figure. The point of this whole thing, the question of morality, is I think the other big theme of this movie, because you mentioned how the movie ends, and he's looking back on his life and trying to reflect desperately at this point because he's in his 90s or something in 2003 when he passes away he's trying desperately to reflect on his life and examine it finally and try to figure out what has caused him to be at this place everyone he ever knew has passed away they were either killed or died of natural causes which briefly scorsese does in a really interesting way kind of that yeah. which reminded me of wolf of wall street which which had me thinking it was going to be a good film mm -hmm. uh by kind of doing freeze frames and showing actors gangsters. as as characters or gangsters 
and then and then when they ended up dying or how they were murdered and so it would it would throughout the film it would sometimes pause and just be like this was so and so he was known for this and then he died this way or he was murdered this way yeah and because these are all true stories these are all real people and most of them died very violent deaths anyway frank sheeran outlives all these people by 20 or 30 years his daughters are grown up they have their own families and specifically he's very estranged with his one daughter who is played by Anna Paquin and she doesn't want anything to do with him and he can't for the life of him figure out why and this is why he's talking to the priest at the end of the movie the very last time we see him and he can't figure it out he had he would accept it if he could figure it out but he's not able to understand his decisions and the priest asks him if he is remorseful if he regrets what he's done and how he's lived because he's never really talked to anyone about it. And it's only just before he dies that he actually takes public responsibility for the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa. But the question is whether or not he's remorseful for his actions and penitent. And he's not able to understand what has brought him to this place, what has caused his estrangement with his daughter, and what has caused what I presume to be, for him, a very empty existence at this point in his life. And there's an interesting quote by uh, Socrates, going to drop some Greek on you. Uh, it's not very long, but it's, it's important. It's the unexamined life is not worth living. And I think that's incredibly important for a character like Frank Sheeran, who has lived his whole life without asking why. Why am I doing these things? He's not self-aware. There's no sense of introspection at any point. He, he says he's doing it for his family earlier in the film. Yes, but I think in a very Walter White way, nice. I don't think it was ever for his family. He's delusional. Because he's clearly not in touch. He wants the status and the, the prowess. Yeah, he never had a connection with his wife, who cheated on and found another woman. Maybe he had a better connection with her. And his daughters, he was clearly never close with. He's never been introspective. He's never been able to consider his actions or the consequences of his actions. So that's why it's also ironic you brought up the soldiers digging their own graves and how he's dug his own grave, essentially, over the course of the film. Mm-hmm. But he's never really considered that. He's never realized that he is the soldier digging his own grave because he has no sense of morality. Yeah, you're right. He doesn't have a sense of morality. When I said earlier that he's accepted that the fact that he's dug his own grave, what but I he, meant yeah. what I meant was not in an, an emotional sense, but a practical sense. The grave being the open door. And you can look at that two ways, right? Just like you can walk through a door or a window, metaphorically. But the door being something you can go out of or something that can come into and so I think he's accepted that this is the accepted the practical reality behind his life and what it's become and that leave my door open because I'm either going to be attacked or I need it as a safety. Yeah. Because I, I need to feel safe. And that's that's the grave that I think he's accepted. But I think you're right about that. He's also still bewildered why he hasn't had deep, meaningful relationships and connections with his family and, and why he's alone. I, I think you're right about that. Yeah. But the, the grave I meant is a more a more practical grave. Like, he clearly knows why he still leaves his door open at the end of the night, you know? See, I disagree. I don't think he knows because that would require the introspection. And even if he would accept the idea of having dug his own grave, I don't think he could ever come to the understanding that he has. And I think... There is an ambiguity to the open door, and it's layered, and you can take it many different ways. But the question is why he continues to do it, right? So on one hand, it's the loneliness. That's the superficial surface level. He's lonely because he's made his decisions, and they brought him to this place where he has no one in his life. He's an old man, and he hasn't really ever had anyone outside of a couple of those crime family relationships that he had. 
but also like what does the open door mean you know on a symbolic level which is like his unfinished story or he has no sense of closure and he probably never will for instance and the priest just leaving him there was pretty impactful i will say i think it's one of his as far as movies he's made this century between this and silence i think it has much more of a message than his more theatrical stuff totally totally I agree. Which I think is why it's it's important for people to maybe get through and see. Because like JoJo, there are a lot of elements to it where it's calling you to examine your own life and the choices you're making. But there are other movies that yeah, does, more accessible. has the exact same call to action or call to introspection that are much more accessible, yeah. And that, then I would pose the question, though, to whom? That, and that's why I was saying, I think, to real deep film geeks this would be a film that one should see well also I, I meant specifically that's true but i meant specifically also like age brackets Be- i don't think it comes down to age i think it comes down to what you're into gangster movies i'm not into i, gangster don't, I don't even think that this is more about the human soul and and what it means to deal with the repercussions of one's choices in in your life that's true i do think that goodfellas is like the precursor to this movie though you know movies like that Cannavale. This is your fourth pick to possibly win Best Picture. I don't know anymore. It's somewhere between four and six. It's in tier two. <laughs> the tier one, Parasite, tier... 1917, Hollywood. Tier two, Irishman. Little Women. Little Women. And JoJo. And JoJo. And then at the bottom, Ford Ferrari, Marriage Story. That's not how I'd rank them, but that's the level, I think, of their we'll actually We'll actually win, yeah. Well, this has been quite a journey, folks. Yeah. Nine podcasts in two weeks. It's been an experience. Holy cow. Uh, I wouldn't recommend it. No. (laughs) No. We're really excited to be done with this part of our lives. Our hope in the future is to do podcasts and be current and up to date with film as stuff comes out. And to fill the gaps. And then in between, we want to try to do other things, reviewing books and albums and by albums i mean music and, and uh burgers and food and <laughs> <laughs> yeah once again we do this because we're passionate about these subjects we're yeah. passionate about film clearly because we could talk about it all day as we have today <laughs> and 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 likewise with music and, and literature anything that could be considered art steven clearly wants to do a pop star podcast because you love taylor swift i don't love taylor swift i'm just saying i watched the documentary last night because you and love i her. planned to compare our Irishman to Taylor Swift tonight. And you held back. It didn't work out. I appreciate it. I did that for your sake. And I'm glad. I, I would have lost my mind. Um, My name's Gabe. And I'm Steven. But you're also my friend. 